Hey, listeners, also known as my lovely lovelies, I wanted to say, remind you to go on our Insta page, What the Fockery, and follow, like, and see what my guests, our guests are, these lovely people who take their time to share with us this information about things that we don't know enough about. If I told you to follow my fingers while I move them in a specific pattern, as you share a traumatic event from your life with me. And by the time we're through, you will be free of that hold that this trauma has on you. Eye movement desensitization reprocessing claims to do just that. It is also known as EMDR, because as you can tell, that is a long name. What the fuckery is EMDR? Well, we're about to find out. I'm Nadej August, your host. If this is your first time, welcome. And here's what you can expect. What the Fockery is a podcast about the things we hear about but don't know enough about. A series of conversations dedicated to hearing firsthand from the very people whose lifestyle, truths, or concepts we struggle with understanding. The very things we should know about but are afraid to discuss. Our subjects and topics may or may not be mainstream, but our guests and sometimes experts are in it, living their truth whether we accept them or not. And if in that process we manage to bring clarity to you, dear listener, then thank you for being curious, open, and willing, and hopefully inspired. In that vein today, my conversation partner is Brooke Bender, who has numerous therapeutic credentials, including being a board-certified art therapist, a licensed marriage and family therapist, LMFT, the acronym we often see after someone's name, and that's what that stands for, and she is an EMDR-trained therapist who specializes in children, although she can help me. You can help me, can't you? I'm an adult. At least least the world (laughs) says so. (laughs) Well, we're all just um, children in grown-up bodies, right? I love that. (laughs) I'm in her offices. It's just like, I feel like I'm in a playground right now. I can see why as a child, I would trust you implicitly. <laughs> Lots of puppets around me. Lots of puppets. And we've got a dollhouse and all kinds of fun things to play with. Yeah. But the information that we're going to discuss applies to adults as well. So what is EMDR? So EMDR, as you mentioned, stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. That's EMDR therapy. That's quite a mouthful. Um, But what EMDR is, is a um, form of psychotherapy, a modality that is used to treat people with all kinds of um, struggles. It was originally developed for people with trauma, with traumatic stress, people with PTSD, And it was developed by a psychologist named Dr. Francine Shapiro, who found that um, 
almost through accident. She was walking through a park one day thinking about something that was distressing her and found that by moving her eyes back and forth, she could actually allow herself to kind of process through this event and then it bothered her less at the end of it. So Now, she was a therapist herself? Yes, okay. a psychologist with, I believe, an education background. And um, and so she began to do some research, and it, it came from sort of a theory of what happens to us during REM sleep at night. Our eyes actually move back and forth um, while we're processing the day's events. And, um, and so that is a sort of a brief um, description. history description mm-hmm. of where EMDR started from. And the early research was on um, Vietnam War veterans with very typical PTSD symptoms. Um, and now the uh, the amount of research and how we're treating people has expanded to not just PTSD and not just people who've been in war zones, but um, all kinds of trauma, um, as well as depression, anxiety, and many other issues that people come into therapy looking for help with. So I first heard of EMDR when I worked at a an ER, an emergency room. This was how I put myself through college. I worked in an emergency room, Area A of Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York, Harlem, the heart of Harlem. And I would work a four to midnight shift on weekends only. And sometimes if my replacement didn't come, I'd have to stay until eight in the morning. So especially Friday, Saturday nights, oh, the things I would wow. see. Wow. Yeah, those are long shifts. And I'm sure sure you saw all kinds of stuff coming into the ER. Awful stories, glorious stories, just a whole like human nature at its best Mm -hmm. and at its worst, right? Yeah. Um, But on occasions, as you can imagine, we would get, um, there's no nice way of saying this, rape victims, right? Mm -hmm. And at one point, there was a program with therapists who would come in who practiced EMDR, and they would give these women treatments right in the hospital in the hospital yeah and that's amazing i think it's actually still not super common you're actually the first person who said that who's seen that in an er that i've spoken to um but it's amazing that the hospital had that available to those um those women those people who were coming in who had just had a traumatic event because what we found is that the sooner that we treat people who've gone through something very traumatic um it's it acts as sort of a a preventative measure, meaning it can it can prevent it from actually becoming PTSD and just, you know, catch it, you know, as soon as it happens or within like the first four to six, eight weeks is still sort of what we call an uh, acute stress reaction. Um, and so catching it at that point is really is really critical. And it's really amazing for those people um, who are not just impacted physically, but emotionally. Right. And I think with that hospital, it, it was just a, a test program. I don't know that it's uh, status quo and that mm-hmm. is what happens. Yeah. But I remember it leaving an imprint on me. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I, like 17, 18 mm-hmm. at the time? Yeah. And also kind of being incredulous that they were waving fingers in someone's face mm-hmm. and that's going to cure them. Give me a break. You know, mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. New Yorker in me just was like, <laughs> what is this? Who well, I think you're not the only one who's who um, questioned and said, does this really work? And, you know, and how and that sort of thing. Yeah. So you mentioned like the acute phase is when it first is when the trauma first happens. Right. And then does it automatically become 
PTSD, post-traumatic stress, or, or how does that work? Like, okay, so no. what comes first? Mm-hmm. The event? So, yeah, first the event actually happens. And, I mean, it's going to be a stressful response for, for anybody. Um, and and there's a period after following the event where it's not quite PTSD yet because the brain and the body still needs time to process that event. And it may or not may may or may not become PTSD, depending on a variety of factors, um, depending on things going on in the person's life, their history, also how the memory was encoded in the nervous system in the brain. Hmm. So whether something is traumatic, first of all, for somebody depends on it's it's a personalized reaction response, right? Um, but it also depends on the nervous system. And how it gets encoded in the nervous system with all of the senses, the sounds, um, the smells, um, the cognitions, meaning the thoughts that we have. Because while it's happening, yeah, yeah or, or even just after, like, I should have done something or it was my fault or um, those sorts of thoughts that are probably not even true or helpful or not realistic, but they can get encoded and kind of stuck in the body and the brain. And sometimes the memory is not sort of stored away properly, if that makes sense. And that can lead to um, post-traumatic stress symptoms. You know, as you, I'm listening to you, I think of two um, occasions. I, I have a dear friend, an older gentleman who is a veteran. And mm-hmm. July 4th is particularly traumatic yes. for him. Mm-hmm. He will lock himself in a room, hide mm-hmm. under a bed. He just can't. It's like with the dogs, right? Mm-hmm. The pets, the, with the yep. sound of the firecrackers going off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can surmise that it's from having been in the war zone. He was, uh, he's, he went to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I can think of a woman who was a battered woman, a victim of uh, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So, both of these can be treated with EMDR. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and what you're what you're mentioning about the the sound from Fourth of July, um, and this gentleman who was in the war, um, probably what happened was some of the memories were being encoded um, through his senses. You know, through his hearing, he heard those sounds. Yeah, he was probably hyper vigilant too. When you're in a war zone, yeah. you probably everything is absolutely. acute and intense, right? Absolutely. And sometimes there's no time or there's no space to kind of reprocess that naturally or the brain isn't able to do it, especially when there's multiple events afterwards. And so, you know, fast forward to current day, there can be other sounds that are, you know, not related to being in a war zone, but just everyday sounds like the, the fireworks for 4th of July or something else, some other noise on the street when somebody drops something and somebody may startle. The boom sound. The yeah. boom sound. And it's a, it's a re-experiencing symptom of that traumatic event. It's not something logical. Um, it just happens in a split second. So um, definitely both are, are treatable. Um, the way we see it from a, from a therapist perspective is they're both traumatic events and we're looking at what is, what's impacting the person and their daily functioning and, um, and just treating it from there. And for in the case of a domestic violence abuse mm-hmm. victim, have you what what triggers? Mm-hmm. Is there necessarily a trigger? 
So I don't specialize in treating domestic violence, um, but the sen- the triggers are going to be different for each person. Um, it might be um, hearing somebody's voice that sounds like the perpetrator. Mm, um, a it, smell, perhaps. Absolutely, a smell that of something that was going on during. Um, you know, an escalated event with the perpetrator. For example, if somebody was cooking dinner and then some something happened, there was a, um, uh, you know, a, an interaction between the perpetrator and the victim, um, the victim may encode that memory with the smell of what was oh, cooking. Oh, the tomato at. sauce, for Absolutely. instance. And they never eat tomato sauce again. Or Absolutely. Just, mm, mm-hmm. that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. This is a great segue because this leads us into children, your specialty. Yes. Because mm-hmm. when I, when I yeah. heard that that was your specialty, I was fascinated. It never occurred to me that children can be treated that way or that, you know, I think childhood is so precious and... A lot of us, unfortunately, have had traumatic things happen to us as mm-hmm. children, right? Um, and I thought it's special that you are, have found a way to combine art therapy and EMDR. Mm-hmm. And so what acute uh, traumatic events do the children you work with have in, What do they encounter or have they encountered? Mm-hmm. Is it post-acute events or while they are suffering through the events? So, you know, being in private practice, I get phone calls from parents who, you know, sometimes are, are struggling with kids. Uh, there's something going on where they're, you know, they don't want to go to school. They're refusing to go to school. They're refusing to get in the shower. They're, um, you know, they're having issues like that just sort of with day-to-day functioning. And the parents, you know, are kind of confused as to why. Um, and they and they come into my office. And so, you know, what I try to do is look for what may be causing the behavior because children are never intentionally defiant. Um, there's all these diagnoses about children being defiant, oppositional defiant. I don't believe in those things because I don't think children do things intentionally. We have to look at sort of the underlying reason why they may be acting a certain way, why they may not want to go to school. Um, why they may not be eating well um, or even going to the bathroom, um, that sort of thing. And so the type of issues that that I've seen, you know, range from uh, medical trauma, early medical trauma, even pre-verbal medical trauma. With children. With children. So I'm talking about things that happen under age two Hmm. um, to... Um, you know, something happening at school where they don't want to go back, either a, a bullying incident um, or, uh, you know, some other medical issue going on at school or something like that. So EMDR can be used to treat um, just things that are developmentally appropriate for children, um, puberty, all kinds of things. Um, so, But it's really interesting when you have things that happen to children under two, because we're talking about memory getting encoded through the through the senses yeah and also Um, do they have the verbal skills to say what it is they don't that's fascinating they don't and that's where the body comes in and what we found is that body the the trauma can get stored not just in the brain but in the body and this is particularly important when we talk about children because under the age of two they are not recording memories the same way that adults record memory. They don't have the cognitive capacities, as you were just saying, 
to be able to recall an event and, you know, speak it back to us. Or rationalize. Or rationalize it. But their bodies sometimes know. Yeah, our cells do encode information. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this is, I think, something really important for any parents listening. Um, if you, you know, end up taking your child to a therapist um, who will hopefully do a, a thorough assessment when the child comes in. But it's really important to share with a therapist, even what happened uh, before you think the child remembers, uh, because that's very important that the therapist is going to take that into consideration when determining how to treat your child. Um, so even if the child doesn't remember, they may not be able to tell you verbally, but they may remember on a body level. And you can test in the body to figure out what's happening. Because if the child doesn't have the verbal skills, mm -hmm. and this is all the parents um, surmising mm -hmm. and guessing, mm -hmm. here's what happened up until they were two, they, you mm -hmm. know, they were in the hospital or something happened, mm -hmm. right? Uh, what what do you do with that information? Do you still use the, ch how do you get a child to follow your finger to begin with? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, well, first of all, I have to be really on my feet with children because it's fast and um, they, you know, their attention span is limited. And so it takes a lot of planning with the parents, first of all, and just clinical judgment to determine what may be causing the behavior um, and then once we figure that out, it's then, you know, getting the actual process for EMDR going. So EMDR, the bilateral, um, stimulation can happen not just with eye movements, but through tapping, through tactile. Um, and we have this set of these lovely Theratappers, which for kids, they're known as the buzzies. Um, and you hold one in each hand and they kind of pulse on either side. Um, or we can do it with sound. So we have headphones um, that we can use as well, and they alternate um, oh, the ears. Sounds. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, I can see that because if the left lobe of the brain is in charge for of those responses that you mentioned, you know, it's the areas responsible for what speech and uh, yeah, memory. Uh, exactly. Executive functioning. Executive so we have functions, speech yeah. um, rationalizing, you know, sort of all of that stuff is on the left hemisphere of the brain. So the sound would probably be on the opposite side, the right ear, right? Is well, actually, they alternate between left and right. Same with the tapping, left and right. Same with the eye movements back and forth. And I know for those listening can't see my my finger right, going right, back and forth I'm watching you. Right She's now. like hypnotizing me. Not really. <laughs> right? <laughs> but what it's doing is it's going through the midline of the body. Mm -hmm. And um, we found that that somehow activates the memory networks in the brain. And um, so that's kind of what gets it going. But to answer your question about how do we do this with children? <laughs> yeah. um, so I have a bunch of um, finger puppets actually in here in this cute little it's set a cute that I have. Box. It's the EMDR toolbox. And it's, let me describe it to my mm -hmm. listeners. And you know what? I'll post a picture of it on Facebook, mm -hmm. on my, on the Instagram page for, sure. for folks to see. And even some of this machine. Oh, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but Brooke, Brooke, please, please, can we play with this? <laughs> it's a the nifty therapist. Can you? Can I experience the therapist? Absolutely. Okay, okay. Absolutely. All right. We're gonna yeah. fix an issue with me. <laughs> 
I've just decided. Okay, so it's an adorable box. It's like a little file cabinet. And uh, in one, there are body sensations. The other one is the feel, true scale, one through seven. Then there's the bother scale. Oh, the language is so simple for children. Well, it's yeah, we had to, I had to simplify it. And this was... Um, you got yucky thoughts, mm-hmm. helpful thoughts. It's just a wonderful tool. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you use this box... So we use this box to kind of help get the kid in, in, engaged in bringing up whatever memory we're working on. And for children, it's usually quite simplified depending on the age. So we may not even use something like the thoughts, the yucky thoughts. They may not have the capacity to do that. If I'm working with children who are like eight and under, I don't even work on the that sort the of... idea of thoughts. That, no, mm-hmm. we just bring up the memory and we bring up feelings because eight-year-olds can usually tell us They usually have some understanding of feelings or can point to feelings on a chart and where they feel things in their body. Mm -hmm. And so there is a psychoeducational piece that happens before we start working on this memory where I'm teaching the child and the parent, of course, so they know what we're doing, teaching the child how to understand what's going on in their body, where we feel things in our body, right? Because we can have all kinds of sensations in our body, stomachs, stomach aches, headaches, all kinds of things, right? Good feelings too. Mm -hmm. And so there's that piece first. That is also part of EMDR therapy, by the way. EMDR therapy is not just reprocessing a traumatic memory. It's an eight-phase model. And so there's a lot of preparation that happens before the actual... The actual repatterning. Yeah, exactly. So once we have that prep work done, then the kid usually knows the type of questions that I'm going to ask them. And then we pick you know, what we're going to use. So whether that's our buzzies, a lot of times the kids really like the buzzies. I have a feeling I'm going (laughs) to like them too. Um, Or, you know, they pick a finger puppet. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, there's also an app that I use on my iPad that I'll show you after where the kids can follow like the elephant going across the screen. And it's doing the reprocessing for them if they follow it. Yeah. Yes. As long as they follow that, it's, it's going to, do the work. So with kids, it it happens very fast. And usually we have to take a break very fast because they get distracted and they they move on to, to, yeah, they to see something the parakeet else. you've got there, the parakeet and go, mm-hmm. oh, I want to play with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And actually, there's a few more behind you. I have Harry the lion and Maggie the eagle. <laughs> and um, and we even, you know, sometimes I'll have the kid um, say like, okay, now uh, we're going to have Harry the lion is going to um, bring up that memory, think of that memory and where he feels it in his body and those feelings. And the kid and will point to where on the puppet, but Yeah, it's really their body. And actually, yeah. sometimes they say point to it, like on the puppet and they point to their own body, which is perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, they know what's going on, you know, it's, um, but it's just a, it's just a vehicle. Sometimes that level of separation by doing it through the puppets or through art um, just makes it feel a little bit safer for right. them. Yeah. Yeah. Not to put you on the spot. I I say this a lot. I'm pragmatic. I need actual (laughs) words that explain something. Mm -hmm. Can you share? And of course, there's privilege. You're not going to say who this client is. Right. Um, A specific trauma of a case that you've dealt with. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what horror a child experienced. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, good on the parents for reaching out for help. Yeah. But yeah. what's an example? Can you share something? So you were asking about um, just examples of, of... An actual example of a case of a child 
just to put it in perspective, like what was the trauma? What were they dealing with that hmm. made them seek your help? Yeah, so um, I've had multiple uh, children come into me because they've had traumatic things happen um, where uh, medically things have happened. So from fainting or from a medical procedure that had to do with um, uh, bowel movements, going to the bathroom, those sorts of things. And um, so those are the type of issues that that have come in um, among many because I, for many years I also treated children with who unfortunately experienced severe traumas um, like physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, sexual abuse, all those types of things or witness domestic violence. So um, big T traumas that we call them. Um, that's not to say that the medical traumas are not traumatic because they certainly are. Um, so there's been sort of a variety of different things. Amazing. So I want to kind of go back to um, adulthood. And this is practical. Can you treat your own self? <laughs> Can you? Like looking at a mirror and just doing the reprocessing pattern? Well, I don't think there's anything out there in the research that says, um, go ahead and try and treat yourself with this. It's best, um, even for myself, um, I have my own EMDR therapist, um, and I'm very open about that. I think it's really important um, that therapists who you know use certain modalities also get to experience it for themselves. Um, you know, I think that's only fair to our clients, and it makes us better therapists, too. So I prefer to, you know, leave it to somebody else to not try and treat my own things that are going on. Um, but, you know, but that may be something that, you know, comes out in the future where we're able to kind of process through those things. But it's I think it's best left to working with a professional who can kind of guide you through what's going on and help you regulate, too, because it, EMDR can be dysregulating. Um and because it is a form of uh, exposure therapy, um, at least the desensitization part, like other trauma therapies, it should be done in an environment that is safe, where there is a trained professional to um, help you regulate if something becomes too dysregulating. What do you mean by exposure therapy? What yeah, is exposure so therapy? exposure therapy was originally developed as a form of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, as a way to desensitize people to something that had happened to them. Um, and I'm not trained in exposure therapy, but basically it's exposing that person to the event again oh, right. in a controlled environment. I've seen it, yeah. Like mm -hmm. people who are scared of swimming, for instance, right. bringing them to a pool or an right. ocean. Right. And so EMDR... Um, is similar to, you know, exposure therapy in that we are bringing back up the event in a, but in a controlled environment, in a safe environment, and helping the person's brain rework through it. So, yeah. And yeah. my final question for you, as adults, can someone meet with their EMDR trained therapist on a weekly basis? Is that too much? Is is it like a, a practical tool? For instance, um, when you said someone's, uh, it can help with depression. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah. what, you would go weekly for a little fix? <laughs> How does it work? 
So um, typically psychotherapy does happen on a weekly basis, but you would have to speak with a therapist and have a, you know, have an assessment session to determine what's the right frequency of therapy for you. Some people need it a little bit more frequently, maybe twice a week. Some people want to come in every other week. Um, But typically we do recommend that, you know, when you come into therapy, you're coming because you want to work on something, you want to get better. So coming once every three or four weeks is probably not going to do it to get the results that you want. Um, So we do recommend that people come regularly for EMDR therapy, just as you would for talk therapy. But it stops at some point. At some point, you are cured of the issue. You don't have to keep going for the rest of your life. Well, I don't know about the word cured um, or, you know, because I, I know that that can be open to interpretation. But but the idea is not that the what happened to you like is completely gone or that, uh, you know, it disappears or something like that. Yeah, the memory doesn't get erased. Exactly. It's it, just the hold it has on you and yes. the functioning of your life. It yes. flows better as a result of... Yes, some- you feel better. You don't have all the symptoms that you were having before. So part of that is talking with your therapist and determining what would it look like when you don't need to come to therapy anymore? Like, what do you want to feel like, think like, act like, you know, that sort of thing. And let's come up with a plan from there. So everybody's goals are going to be different. How did you end up specializing with children? Um, well, I spent uh, eight years, seven or eight years working in community-based clinics um, here in the San Gabriel Valley, actually. It's my first jobs out of um, grad school were in these clinics. And um, I think it was just, you know, I just enjoyed working with children and working with families. And I kept going, you know, I don't know. It just sort of found you. I think it found me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was seeing a lot of really traumatized children and trained in a lot of different therapy modalities. And when I got to the point where I was ready to start my own practice, I was really looking into what was going to be the most effective treatment modalities. And that's where EMDR came in and bridging I think some of my training in art therapy and EMDR felt like a natural fit for me. And it's also been, I think, the most healing for my patients. Mm. Who is EMDR right for? I believe you mentioned that uh, it is also being used to treat our firemen and who who, who else? Who's the Yeah, so EMDR absolutely is really great for first and uh, second responders. So... People just like you who are working in an emergency room, um, our firefighters, our policemen who are exposed to trauma after trauma after trauma and are expected to just hold it together um, and suck it up and just go back to work. Um, so it's really effective for first responders. Um, and like I mentioned, it's for people with uh, depression, anxiety, um, PTSD, it's being used for, I, I really think it's, it has a broad spectrum use, um, that it doesn't get 
you know, p- if people have heard of EMDR, it's usually for big traumas. Right. Um, but I think it's, it's certainly very effective for big traumas. Yeah. And of course, you know, there are, you know, certain conditions, medical conditions you want to tell your therapist about um, because those type of people may not be appropriate for EMDR or may need to have a um, people with things like seizure disorders need to be cleared from a neuro- neurologist. Um, first, just to make sure that it's not going to affect yeah. affect any of their neurological conditions or uh, that sort of thing. So it's important just to give your therapist a thorough medical history as well. So that's why we fill out all these forms Absolutely. and get a whole assessment. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, Brooke, it has been a pleasure. You are delightful. <laughs> Thanks so much. And listeners, maybe I will do a little video and post on Instagram um, about my experience using, uh, what's that called? The little Tetra machine there? Oh, the Theratoppers the or the Buzzies. I want to I get buzzed. <laughs> I'm going to get buzzed the natural way. All right, listeners. Thank you, Brooke. Let's say goodbye. Thanks so much. How do you tell, get your kids to say goodbye to you? Or do they say goodbye in a cute way? Oh, yeah. I don't know. We just wave, high five, whatever we want to do, that sort of thing. See you later. (laughs) Oh, wait. um, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to share this. Your boyfriend is from Holland. Mm -hmm. How does he say goodbye? Oh, we say, uh, do we? (laughs) Do we? (laughs) Do we? All right, listeners, do we? (laughs) Do we?